welcome to Swing Stuff, the podcast in which we talk about swing dancing, swing music and all of the various stuff that intersects with swing dance culture both historically and today. My name is Ruby Bell and this month's episode is with the wonderful Nancy Hitzig, who is a dancer, a choreographer, a fundraiser, a coach and an all-round creative badass who gets things done. I really like Nancy. In 2019, she launched a project with Kat Foley called Swing Sister Swing. I'll let Nancy explain this in her own words in the podcast, but essentially it's a theatre show that tells the story of what it's like to be a female follow and the politics of partner dance. I wanted to ask Nancy about what it was like to get this project off the ground, like how do you produce a show? How do you take the first step in making a creative idea happen? How do you budget? How do you apply for funding? All of those sorts of things. Nancy is so good at this and honestly I learned so much from speaking with her. As always, I hope that this podcast can be a resource for dancers and creatives wanting to get their own projects off the ground. And if nothing else, Nancy is a natural born storyteller and is just endlessly joyful to listen to. Uh, Just a note to say that we recorded this episode some months before the COVID-19 outbreak. So if any references to um, events in 2020 uh, seem somewhat anachronistic, then please understand uh, that this is why. Also, before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to say that if you enjoy this podcast, then I would really appreciate it if you could show your support by checking out my Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a platform where you can support artists and creators in turn for a small monthly donation. This week, I've been updating it with some cool rewards. So uh, head over to patreon.com slash swingstuffpodcast to take a look at that. Um, Or if you prefer to make a one-off donation, you can also do that at swingstuff.com slash donate. Currently, this project is self-funded by me and any support uh, that you can offer is greatly appreciated and it really helps me to continue producing episodes. So uh, that's it from me. Here is our conversation. Nancy, thank you so much for coming on the show. So you are a woman of many talents and a dear friend. For somebody who has never met you, what's your intro? What do you tell people? Uh, I would say, uh, hi, I'm Nancy Hitzig, and I am a dancer and a fundraiser and a coach. And I help people to think a little bit about um, people who want to get dancing, people who want to feel more confident, and people who want to have thoughtful conversations about financial resilience. Those are kind of the things that I'm really into. How do we feel better about ourselves? Yeah, I mean, what's not to love? Um, And so we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but what brought you to swing dancing, swing music, and where you are today? Well, I mean, the... The, fu- the joke is, and, and several friends have heard the story many different times, uh, I was the third wheel on a date in my first Lindy Hop class, and I don't know why I went, but I know that I was there. And my friend Steve invited me, and I always kind of knew what Lindy Hop was, and I've loved early jazz since I was a, since I was a teenager, and I was heavily influenced by the taste of my older brother and my father, who were big jazz lovers. And I sort of found it and was in this class where I was standing across from a guy who was like old enough to be my grandfather and who was unironically wearing socks with sandals. Great look. 
and we were all in fluorescent lighting. And I don't know about you, but I never look good in fluorescent lighting. <laughs> and um, and I was 16 and a goth, so obviously very cool. And it, it was this environment where I discovered what the dance was, but that's not the moment where I took it up. It was sort of an awkward um, bizarre evening where I still question why I was there in the first place. And then it's a few years later when I saw a crash course being given by a, a school in Toronto that I decided to sort of take up the dance. And it came at a funny moment in my life where like I trained as a classical musician. I trained, I was an opera singer and I played double bass from when I was a kid. And I just felt like I'd found my mode of artistic expression. It was the thing that felt the most joyful, the most, um, comfortable in my body and was something that I picked up really quickly and learned a lot on the social dance floor. Like I really didn't take that much class. I just learned a lot on the dance floor and did a lot of workshops. And I was in a place in my life where I had, you know, I was in university and I was only half interested in my classes. So I had the capacity to travel and Lindy Hop offers such an amazing opportunity to meet people from all over the world and to travel. And so I really kind of took that up and spent, you know, I think every six weeks I went to a camp or an event across the U.S. And so that's really kind of how I formed as a dancer. Yeah, wow. And so you're based in London at the moment. Yes, I've been in London for six years. And I moved here originally to do a master's in 2013. And then it was the Lindy Hop community, I would say, that um, made it feel like home. I sometimes feel like, you know, the analogy of like, to be an exotic flower, like you need certain conditions and like weirdly as an exotic flower <laughs> or, you know, somehow, you know, no light in the wintertime is <laughs> like my perfect conditions. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so today, I mean, I would love to talk to you about many things because you do many things, um, but particularly um, I'm so impressed and inspired by your project Swing Sister Swing at the moment. Um, and. I would love to talk to you about what it means to put on a show and what your experience has been like so far with your shows um, in recent years. So I guess maybe the best place to start would be to put it in your own words. Um, what is Swing Sister Swing? Sure. I mean, this is evolving all the time, Ruby. We've been we've been just talking about this uh, mm -hmm. before we started recording. But I think Swing Sister Swing is a project that began out of this idea of a desire to tell female-led stories, female-follow-led stories in the Lindy Hop community. Because, um, of course, we have the rules of lead and follow. Um, those We have these like heteronormative, like, men lead and women follow perspectives. But actually, it's the 21st century, so no one cares. And it's a dance that means that we have to... We both have a role to play, and our roles are different. And we need both of us to do what we're supposed to do for the dance to function. Mm. And... We really wanted to highlight stories of, of female follows, and it came out of uh, a series of conversations with my co-collaborator and co-artistic director, Kat Foley. And it sort of began, I now realize even earlier, where we think about Swing Sister Swing being this original female-led dance show about Lindy Hop women in a modern context. <laughs> um, but before it was a show, it was a group of badass women in 2015 who were really tired of looking at very feminine aesthetics in solo jazz 
and then wanting to make something that was a that was a um, a touch tongue in cheek or a bit counterculture to that. And that was uh, a group that we called ourselves the Jelly Beans because we felt no one was ready for that jelly. <laughs> and that originally was um, a series of dancers, uh, Tay, who is a South Korean dancer who has subsequently moved back to South Korea, Kat, myself, Sienna Skeet, who's a very fine, um, brilliant dancer here in London, um, and Rose Hall, who subsequently moved to Bristol. And the five of us made this sort of wacky routine to Stuff Smith's My Blue Heaven. And we performed it at the London Swing Festival in the team division, in like the, the chorus line division. Um, and we got third or second. I can't remember how we placed. We placed. It was very, but we, I mean, to be fair, we'd only put in about eight hours on that choreography. So like, um, but it was very much about making something that was, uh, that wasn't about look how we looked it was about a feeling and it was about celebration like i think those are kind of maybe the main themes and it had like you know a lot of the choreographic work that cat and i make is about ordering chaos i think where it's about these moments where the way i think of it sometimes is like i want it to be so sharp like it comes into focus and then it blurs you know like like you know when you're a kid and you look at um what are they what are those things called like a uh, kaleidoscope that it like it comes into focus and it's sharp and then it goes out of focus and i think mm. in a in jazz dance that's so exciting to watch the difference between sharp movement and loose movement i think that is something that like demonstrates skill but can also be really surprising mm. and so that was that was nice like we didn't want to look like each other we wanted to look like ourselves but then we needed moments where we were really in sync so that we didn't just look like we hadn't put the effort in yeah right and so we did that performance in 2015 and then we unexpectedly won this accolade and then we thought okay well maybe we'll do this at the european swing dance championships and maybe we'll put in a bit more rehearsal so like it's you know good and um and again we performed it and like again we placed which was unexpected and the feedback we got actually from a lot of the international teaching community was overwhelmingly positive and I had judges coming up being like, I put you, I put you first, I put you second, because they, again, it was, it was so, um, it wasn't like Spice Girls girl power. It was like Lindy Hop female follow, like you're welcome kind of power. Like it was, it was very um, irreverent. And I think that was exciting. And I think that kind of began this sort of longer term collaborative relationship between Kat and I where this question of like ordering chaos and female female stories in the Lindy Hop community that maybe we don't get to tell when a lot of our showcase opportunities are competitions or um mood lit ballroom social dances mm. and I think you know Lindy Hop has the capacity to tell lots of stories and there's so many stories from the community that could be told, but no one's really telling them. Mm. And I think sometimes we get stuck in this cycle of like, and here's like the history of swing dance, which is important, deeply important. But then the so what is, and what does it teach us about our lives now? And how can Lindy Hop be a tool for radical societal change and for modeling the society we want to live in? And I think, you know, that that's not Kat speaking there. That's obviously my opinion. But um, I think that's that was sort of a 
a beginning, a spark. Mm. And then that kind of led us to self-producing, which is entirely my fault. <laughs> it's entirely my fault. Um, because uh, I remember we wanted to, to do some, some scratch work. We wanted to, so, you know, scratch is where you, you, know, you try out new things with an audience and you kind of see how they respond. And so we book, so I booked the Rag Factory in East London, which is like wildly inexpensive um, and is a little black box theater. And I booked it so that we could have a scratch night. And I just sort of called Kat and was like, yo, I booked this in six months. And so we have to do a thing. And then it kind of uh, led to other projects and led to the making of a show. And like, there's lots about how we made the show and whose conversations and blah, 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 which I'm sure we'll talk about. But like Swing Sister Swing really is a show about what it is to be a woman in Lindy Hop. But actually, it's about what it, what is it to be a woman in society and what is it to feel like the other? Mm. And then what stories can we tell of that experience? And actually, how can we find the universal in the niche? It's a very long answer, Ruby. Yeah, no, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm very interested in this concept of Lindy Hop and performance as well, because we know we know Lindy Hop and swing dancers to be um, a social experience, a social dance. And um, it also has... A really strong history as a performative dance but like you mentioned like a lot of the performance opportunities for dancers are at these events in showcase categories and competitions and why a show like why a it's very close to theater and even seeing the show I was really struck by um, how compelling some of the more theatrical scenes were or the vignettes the ones that weren't necessarily dance acts like why this format I think because so it was a devised work um, and I should say I'm not a trained actor. I'm a, I'm a singing actor in, in that I studied opera. And so, you know, in the context of acting was, was learned through the practice of singing, which I don't even really do anymore. But um, and whereas Kat is a trained actress and improv comedian and Lana Williams and Alicia Brockenbau and Colbert Newsom are all trained actresses. and as well as being exceptional dancers and Katie Stodder is both a musician and, um, and an incredible dancer. And I think as we devised work, what we realized was that we were making a theater show. I think initially we thought it was going to be a dance show or more of like a physical theater show. And then what actually happened was that we made a theater show that was told through, through the lens of Lindy Hop. And it's interesting now because we've we've been doing more R and D on that particular project and thinking about how we develop it further and how we offer more character development for like the story that evolved, which is about a troupe, you know, of six women that becomes unexpectedly successful and then a victim of its own success. And so you kind of have like the discovery of the joy of swing dancing and then the removal of that joy and then the rediscovery of it together and like what they make when they're together that doesn't exist when they're apart mm. and i think that story kind of because initially we were like we're going to talk about like a manager who's like in the you know who's like abusive and it's going to be this whole thing and 
And then it actually was way more interesting to t- to look at. We didn't need a a male. We could talk about men and like the influence of men, particularly like like a, a story in the show is is actually the story of my first swing dance class, but told through the perspective of my character. And at one point, like an old grumpy man tells me to bend my knees more. And I remember it so vividly. And I just thought then, you know, 16 year old Nancy, you know, I don't need a man then or now to tell me what to think and how to feel and what to do. And, you know, I think um, we had a lot of preliminary conversations before we started devising to say, what do you actually, what are the stories you want to tell? So that we could kind of arm our director and like get him to kind of pull that out of us and, um, and sort of offer a series of tasks to make scenes and to devise content for the show. And uh, everybody talked about this feeling of being too insert adjective here. So, you know, too, too light, too heavy, too big, too small, too fast. You know, like, like, all, like all of us, there was like an element of inadequacy or like critique, external critique that all of us felt and that we all kind of wanted to engage with. Mm. And the reality is like we all feel this incredible abundant love and joy of the dance and the things it offers us. But we've all had to also face things that are societal problems, not Lindy Hop problems, but because the community is small, it feels like the problems are so much bigger. And I think like that's the thing. Lindy Hop, the Lindy Hop community is like a microcosm for society. So when you have problems in the little mini community, the mini society, the ripple is so much bigger. But then you have the opportunity to make change or to create conversation in a in a more pervasive way than we can with big broad society. Mm. And I and I think we sort of we developed the work and that kind of came out it became a theater show i also think because of the time frame like we that th- what you saw what, what ruby saw at at rich mix in july 2019 was a 70 minute original show that had elements uh it had dance routines in it it had vignettes that kind of described lindy hop movement but also kind of gave some indication of character dynamics it had um some physical theater it had some spoken word it had uh just regular old scenes between characters to kind of develop relationships it had uh, an original score that we composed from uh, 222 music that was recorded by an all-female 17-piece big band you know it 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 had um it became this big project and it became a theater show but I think it was because like the stories we were telling um, in the first instance with the time we had, because we devised that, we devised the material in like four or five days. And then we spent five days polishing and then one day teching and then did three shows. So it was very fast. So I think in some instances we relied on words because actually we didn't have the time to translate that into movement because to find the storytelling tools through movement, I think we would have needed more time. Mm. Wow. And so do you have a do you have an idea of who your audience is? For example, for a for a kind of general public audience that maybe doesn't know what 
Lindy Hop is today. Maybe they have an idea of, um, you know, what they've seen on like Strictly or something like that. Do you think this is a show for all audiences or do you think it's specifically for a Lindy Hop community? We tried to make something that was where it was a slice that maybe people had never seen before, but then finding the universal and the joy and something they didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. So it was, and that was partially like our director is not a Lindy Hopper and is also a man, like on a female led project. Like he, he is um, the, the, the sort of the artistic cornerstone voices are really Kat Foley, myself and, and a gentleman named Joe Hardy. And Joe really viewed his job as facilitating our stories and felt a tremendous sense of responsibility. And everything he suggested and developed with us was offered as a proposal. And I think his approach, I think we were all really um, impressed with and really appreciated his approach because it was very much one of, I don't know Lindy Hop, but I do know how to tell a story and I do know theater. And we... And in terms of the dramaturgical forces to help us tell our story, he was fantastic, but we really wanted to have someone that was outside of the community to help us make it universal. Like when you watched it, like did it, it had, it had lots of Lindy Hop tropes, but was it a difficult to understand story? Not at all. And I think like, I really tried to, I don't know how well I did this, but I really tried to separate myself from like, what I already understand about Lindy Hop and the nuances of like the Lindy Hop culture and lead and follow dynamics and that kind of thing and just be like what would this show be like if I knew nothing about this and what I loved was that um like particularly the vignettes where you'd you'd watch this like quite intense emotional scene or like a really beautiful delicate scene between two friends and then um it would be like the swing out. Yeah. And then <laughs> like, there would be like a mini lesson and um, it would just be like a little taste, one move. And and it was such a lovely transition between moments that is also um, a really nice way to give context to what the dance is. If, if you don't understand, like if that isn't your experience or your understanding. And also like if you like in the show, you in that iteration of the show, this would this will change in future iterations that would you don't see like real legit fast partnered Lindy Hop until like the last number of the show. Mm. And in that last number, like you've just seen like loads of moves that are in that routine. So like suddenly yeah. you as a, as a non Lindy Hopper would have context. You're like, Oh, I've seen that before, you know, in terms of recognition. Um, and the feedback on those vignettes was like really people loved them. They were like, those were really great. And, and the, they were these little monologues that Joe had us do as a task where we had to write we all had to pick a move and then we had to write eight lines that had to have eight syllables or like eight words. Like it, he gave it a constraint, like beats in, in music. Mm-hmm. And then four lines were to be about actually doing the move. And then four lines were about to be the, were supposed to be about the feeling of the move or some just like having a bit of flavor of both. So like, I mean, I can't, I can only remember probably part of my nail, but it was like the swing out. And it's like, it was something like, um, uh, you know, one hand, two hands, like whizzing around. Like it had, it, and it, and it, they became very poetic mm. as a result. And one of them was about like clapping on one and three. Cause in like in jazz music and in jazz dance, we clap on the evens, not the odds. 
And from the top of the show, that was like really important to us that we let the audience know that if they're going to clap, they're going to clap Ooh, on yeah. two and four. You know, <laughs> let's get that. So it's yeah. like it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Like that. That was very. You know, feels like feels like important work to be done. Yeah, definitely. Um. So so those I thought were a great function, and like I think in the next development phase of the of the work those are still going to be really important features and how and where they fit in the show i think are also like you know then other questions like in those vignettes we were very much our characters in those vignettes whereas like in a future iteration it might be more like we are like a 1950s stone-faced dance demonstration <laughs> oh yeah like an instructional kind of yeah like in like groovy movie and stuff oh, like cool. that that's what, groovy movie is like a vintage clip that like you can watch and see from from the swing era that's like very funny yeah we'll pop it in the show notes yeah <laughs> yeah um so i would love to know about what the process is like like even even starting with this once once you have the idea what is the very first step in terms of practical steps how do we make a show Sure. So, I mean, you can be like me and you can just book a theater, which is probably not the right way round, but um, it is a it way round. <laughs> it is yeah. a way round. Um, so, so the show that we did at uh, the Rag Factory was in partnership with an incredible dancer named Sharon Davis, Kat Foley and myself, and that was a scratch night. And in that instance, the process was I booked a theater and then said, hey, friends, I booked a theater. Do you want to do like a scratch night together? And then we, um, uh, you know, uh, Sharon very generously, like, graphic designed a logo and did a whole thing. And then we, um, in that instance, it was pretty light touch. So, you know, we decided on some ticket prices and we put some tickets on sale. And then we started promoting that to friends through social media. And on the night, we had uh, a good friend who sort of ran music for us. And we had a day of rehearsal in the space the day before so that we could figure out what we were doing and how it was going to flow. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to focus less, I think, on that. I think it's important to understand that was a, a scratch night and it can be as simple as you book a theater, you use Eventbrite or like you could even just do bank transfer in your own bank account if you really or yeah. PayPal if you want to be basic. Yeah. Cash on the door. <laughs> Cash on the door. Yeah. Um, and you turn on the lights and maybe you have a free box of wine and that's enough. Yeah. You know, you ask a friend to to do the door for you in advance. Um, so it can be as simple as that. You know, maybe have a Bluetooth speaker to play some music. It can be as simple as that. That led to a conversation with the executive director at the Arcola Theater in Dalston, who do um, some incredible work, particularly with new artists. And they have an annual festival called Grimeborn, which is actually um, uh, an opera festival. And somehow I kind of blagged our way into Grimeborn and they gave us a Sunday night where we could do two shows. And so for that process, it was, we'd love to do this drag and drop cabaret again. Could we do it at the Arcola as part of this festival in their main space, which seats about 100 and I think it's 189 people. Um, and they went for it. <laughs> and I remember that conversation where it's like, well, what is it? And I'm like, well, it's like a cabaret. And they're like, yeah, but what is it? And I was like, it's like vaudeville. And they're like, oh, it's like a vaudeville show. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> That's totally what it is. Yeah. And um, it ended up for a variety of reasons that that show actually 
you know, Kat and I, um, for for a few reasons, uh, Sharon had to step away from the project. And so Kat and I sort of sat down and said, okay, we have this date, we've paid the deposit. What do we want to do? And we were like, well, we're storytellers, so why don't we tell a story? And we decided to call it Swing Sister Swing. I think partially because we couldn't come up with a better name, but I like it. Can you tell us the reference? Like, oh, there's a song that goes uh, "Swing Brother Swing," mm. and so you know the question of whether or not there are like commas in "Swing Sister Swing." I mean, the commas have since been removed, but like initially, I kept putting in all the commas. I was like, "Swing Sister Swing," because if you listen to the song, it goes "Swing Brother Swing." <laughs> you know, it's like this. You know, and I thought, well, you know, it's like no one's ever going to care about those commas. So I just sort of stripped them away. Um, the hard bit is like I've ne- the short form annotation in my notebook for Swing Sister Swing is Swing X like S X S because S S S does not sound good. <laughs> it's like you know, yeah. um, as a Jewish woman, I feel like that's not a good like reference. Uh, but yeah, so we came up with the name Swing Sister Swing, and we had this idea of. Partially because, you know, Rich Mix very generously gave us um, some in-kind rehearsal space towards the project. And we were both like, well, we have the, the, the you know, as sort of the cornerstones of it and bringing in a bunch of, of professional friends and peers. What story do we want to tell? And we have the most time to put into the project. So, like, we'll really make the narrative reliant on us. And so we told the story of, of two women who are both looking for, in my instance kind of looking for love and in Kat's instance looking for a dance partner because those two ideas this idea of looking for a partner has both a professional and a personal connotation and I think it's something that I wrestle with and I often question within myself about my own unconscious bias of like wanting to hold hands with a man and that's something I've really had to understand. Like we both lead and follow. Like it's worth saying, like we are both very, very competent leads and follows. And most often, and I, I won't speak for Kat, I'll speak for myself. I prefer following. I like following in a performance context. Um, I enjoy both roles, but like if I'm going to go into a jam circle, most often, like I want to go in as a follow. and. It's difficult in a dance where you need a partner to make it happen. And there is both a societal expectation that is unspoken and unconscious, as well as being in the room about that. And like, it's complicated. It's a complicated thing. And I think the, we sort of explored that in the show and it almost, it almost felt like I look back on that now and it almost felt like brush strokes. you know, it kind of felt like, it was sort of um, more ideas, like more of like the personal and like these like very personal stories where like Kat loses her partner and then has to live audition a partner from the audience, which was wildly funny. I love audience participation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When they're dancing, to, I want to feel the heat with somebody like to Whitney Houston. Oh, it was like magical. Yeah, totally. And um, and in my instance, it also included a burlesque number um that i made years ago that was an exploration around how i wanted to feel the next time i was in love and it was to billy holiday's the man I, uh, rendition of the man i love 
And there's such a sense of longing and hopefulness in that song. Like it's really bittersweet, but it's like, one day he'll come along, the man I love. He'll be big and strong, the man I love. And when he comes my way, I'll do my best to make him stay. And it's like, ooh, what a what lyric, you know? Mm. The, and that kind of hopefulness, I think, like is something that's really, like I think a lot of people can identify with a guy like I mean I I certainly can and so you know we had like and then we had um a small company of dancers um who we sort of brought into the project um Teen the Machine uh Carentima and the Dinas uh Robin Larson who's great is a fantastic dancer Katie Stodder who's again you know an amazing musician and dancer and we sort of um created this showcase i think at that point it went from being sort of a scratch night to a showcase that had an over sort of a a a couple of ideas of stories we might want to tell and showing more of the competitiveness that we feel for men in the dance like i think a lot of the things that were in that show were sort of about that and in that context what had to happen was that we needed to have we needed to pay have the conversation with the executive director we had to pay the deposit and sign the contract. We had to read the contract before we signed contract it. Contract with the... With the Arcola. Okay. And part of that was that it was a box office split. So we got 40% of the box office. They got 60%. That was net. Because like when you look at these numbers, sometimes you have like the fees. Because like, for example, credit cards always take like 3%. And different to box office systems have different things. And like data usage now, there's like a whole thing with um, uh, what people's privacy with GDPR, which is like the the government legislation in this country to hold on to people's data. There's all sorts of considerations around that. Marketing would be in that contract. Um, front of house management would be in that contract. How they deal with comps, how they deal with all of the complimentary tickets, like all of that stuff would be part of that. And then we had to get artwork for which we needed to do a photo shoot. We needed uh, video content. So we did like a couple of interviews on that that um, a friend of ours, uh, um katie cobalt edited and did a great job on saying what the show is and what it would look like we needed to have agreements with the artists as to um rehearsals we needed rehearsal venues and confirm dates for those rehearsals we needed to know um who our production manager was going to be at this point i'd brought on a lighting designer named zach macro who is like you, you know um part of my chosen family for the long term now whose mother dances Lindy Hop, interestingly. Oh, great. Um, and he was really excited about lighting something about Lindy Hop um, and working together on this project. And it was kind of pulling together those skills. I think we went for quite a lean team in that we had 14 performers, ambitious, a production manager stroke stage manager, and Cam Mitchell, who is a titan, a lighting designer, and then Kat kind of wore the hat of director and I kind of wore the hat as producer in addition to being co-choreographers and, and co-artistic directors. And performers. And performers. <laughs> we were doing a lot of things that day. Um, and then uh, and then kind of the subsidiary pieces of that. I mean, in my professional practice, I've worked as a fundraiser. And so I applied to the Arts Council for funding. And I applied for an under 15,000 um, pound, uh, at the time they were called Grants for the Arts. Now they're called the National Lottery Project Grants. And I originally applied and I got rejected. 
And I applied where I had a 12 hour window where I could reapply because like you need six weeks before the project starts to be able to facilitate. And so it's actually one of the only Arts Council grants I've ever been turned down for. <laughs> I've made like over a dozen applications. And, it's, and of course, it's like my, my project. That's like the only one where I get turned down. And I, in 12 hours, um, I contacted my grants manager and was like, hey, do you think it's something wrong with the bid? And he's like, no, just put it in. It was, it was on the table, but it was too far down the pile. Maybe add a sentence about this. Reapply. I applied to the Arts Council and they declined my application. I mean, it just was unsuccessful. And within 12 hours, I reapplied. I like did like a slight tweak and then I reapplied. Um, and we got it, <laughs> which is crazy. And a lot of people, like when they get like a no, would just be like, well, I guess that's it. I'm like, for whatever reason, that's not me. <laughs> I'm just like, let's reapply. Is this still worth it? I mean, to be fair, I did cry, but um but i was like there was enough time and i'm like well i have to try one more time because like you know i i often i think one of the things in my mind is always um let other people decide that you're let other people say no but that means you still have to apply or be on the table to be considered so i try to let other people do that and I still feel lots of disappointment when I don't get things because, like, I mean, I've applied for, like, dozens of grants or, like, residencies related to Lindy Hop in the last four or five years. And the number of times, I mean, I had one that, like, Ruby, like, I applied for a residency with a company who I, you know, I could name, but I'm not going to. Um, and they told me, and it was, like, to collaborate with composers and like live musicians, which we do on like a weekly basis as Lindy Hoppers. Is that like, is that fair? Right, yeah, definitely. Um, and so I applied and like sent in all my stuff and they were like, you're obviously very good at what you do, but like we would need to see that you have a demonstrated uh, experience working with contemporary dancers and working in a contemporary movement language. And I'm like, you had a thing on your form that said that you were open to diverse dance styles. Yeah, and I'm like, and I sent you like four things where I'd performed and like co like co choreographed things with a live band. Their loss. What a bunch of yeah, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, that was a bummer. But it, the, I guess the the moral of the story is like a no just means not now, mm. and a no may also mean reapply. So yeah. like that was that was something that came out of that to be able to have the budget to be able to pay everybody. And like, that was something that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about is, is paying people. Um, and, uh, one of the things we did with that iteration of Swing Sister Swing was that we had everybody have an understanding that there was a pay scale. So it was like, if we don't get Arts Council funding or if we're not successful in our crowdfunder, which we were there, we raised like 2,900 pounds towards the project through crowdfunder, um, through 81 exceptionally kind and generous people. <laughs> Um, what we did was we said, the minimum you will be paid is this, the maximum you will be paid is this, and we will know by this date which one you will be paid. So in the first instance, expect the former. In the best instance, expect the latter. Um, but we're really happy to have you on the project and we really appreciate your time. That's great. I'm so glad we have that on the record. Can everyone like... <laughs> do that <laughs> i mean i also shared the budget with everyone that was like a level of transparency i yeah. think that do you is... think that was a good decision i had two people who participate 
um, comment that they were professional freelancers in other industries. And that often people talk about being transparent and they're not. Mm. And that it was one of the rare opportunities where like they could see exactly how money was being spent. And I was like, yeah. And I'm like, and honestly, I have no problems telling you how much I'm paying myself on this because it's if we don't like, I mean, Kat and I did the numbers and like we both agreed that like if the, sh we, w the only way we could proceed with doing it is if we were both comfortable with the loss. So if we couldn't put on the show, we were both prepared to pay like 400 pounds each out of our own pockets um, or to split the fees for people and like pay that out of our own pocket. Like we sort of made some agreements of like we had sort of three budgets. We had like worst case fall off a cliff. We had middle case the most likely of what we would achieve and then we had the best case if we had everything come in mm -hmm. and again i think working on a scale system was a really sensible idea because it also just you know half the time everybody would have done it for free if we'd asked but like in terms of my own feelings on that like I think you got to repay the favor bank with the money bank <laughs> at a certain point. Cause like how many times do you get, I mean, you have so many professional skill sets. Like how many times do people ask you to like edit something or film something or do something for free? Yeah. I mean, it's like, sometimes it's not an outright ask as well. It's just kind of a, like a suggestion or a kind of beating around. You the have, bush you have nothing else to do on a Friday night. And it's, it's really hard. It's like, because quite often it'll be people, who, it's not necessarily that people don't value your work and say, oh, well, you can do this for free, right? It's like, I think it's a misunderstanding of what that work involves. And it's an underestimation of, of what that involves. So I, my guess is that it's a similar kind of thing. Um, like when people ask for free work, um, in whether it's performing arts or otherwise, I think it's like, but you love it, right? And it's easy. And it's a misunderstanding of all of the things that go into making something and making something good. Well, it's like that Malcolm Gladwell thing where like, you, or like the 10,000 hours situation, yeah. like you've put in the 10,000 hours to be a really confident, exceptional video editor. And like, I've put in 10,000 hours to be a really exceptional fundraiser and grant writer. Um. I find, and in dance, like, and, and in music too, where people are just saying something and you're like, you got to buy a ticket if you want to see the show. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, the question is, will you do my, you know, you're an accountant. Will you do my taxes for me? Like, and but you love it, right? <laughs> but you love doing taxes, don't you? And then they're all, suddenly they, they like, like they suddenly become like, like a, like a shrinking violet, you know, <laughs> it's like in those moments. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of thinking about budgets, like, um, what are all of the things you need to budget for? I mean, there's my assumption is there's venue hire mm -hmm. and then there's performer fees, there's crew fees. Mm -hmm. Is there anything I'm missing? Like what what does that budget go towards? Well, I mean, so so you know, I just kind of like took you through like the the process of like booking, you know, what was the rag factory and then what was like the Arcola presentation for three performances. And then in at Rich Mix, who have been, I mean, an incredible partner and, and an amazing venue in east london that really supports a lot of um live art making of all different kinds uh at rich mix you know they gave us um there's this idea of of in kind so if somebody gives you something in kind 
like if I were to say, hey, Ruby, do you want to like edit my cousin's boyfriend's sister's Battle of the Bands footage into like a 30 second trailer and you were to be like, God, of course, Nancy, then, you know, the time you spend editing that, that you then give to me because you've been so generous, which I obviously would not ask you for. Um, uh, or would I? I mean, people listening have no <laughs> idea what I would have, you know, um, in the time you put into that has a has a monetary value, right? You have an hourly a day rate. So the time you've put into editing this um, piece of media for me is a donation of services in kind because I'm not paying for the service, but it has a monetary value. So often like the hardest thing in London is rehearsal space because mm. like, like you can't find anywhere to open his doors for you for less than 40 quid an hour. And when you're doing eight hours a day and you need like anywhere from like 10 to 15 days of rehearsal time, it's expensive. Mm. Rich Mix gave us very generously seven days of, of in-kind studio space and English National Ballet wonderfully and, and bizarrely gave me uh, an additional two days in like their JMU's space just before it closed when they moved to their new London City Airport um, purpose-built facility. Um they had a coffee machine in their cat. Sorry, I, I'm digressing on this one, everyone. <laughs> no, go but on. Like, what was the coffee machine like? Oh my God, the coffee machine had like mochas and had like lattes. What? And it was like, it had, they had an ice machine because mostly people, you know, need ice for injuries. But like... Was it the kind where you pressed it and it did it? You pressed the thing and then the coffee came out. And then like they had like a big thing with with like ice in it and it was like in the summer. So we were like making... Do you have pictures? Like what? <laughs> no, I totally took pictures. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was obviously when we knew we'd made it. <laughs> you're like we are (laughs) you know um so that was that was quite funny but uh (laughs) like that's the thing that really stuck out to me about the jamie's english national ballet space um but the but uh, donations in kind and rehearsal space are really important and then we actually paid for a couple of days at rich mix um so we had like a big chunk of in kind from them which retail so commercially they charge out for a substantive amount of money there's an artist rate so we paid for a couple of days at the artist rate and then we got some days in kind from english national ballet and we also paid for a few days at siobhan davy studio who are fantastic and have an independent artist or freelancer rate for their space there are other places like chisholm hale dance space who are amazing uh, in victoria park but they're really busy because they're beautiful spaces that are affordable and that is obviously very difficult to find. Interestingly, we realized we really needed mirrors, and in only one, only in the English National Ballet space did we have mirrors. Right. Which was that was a learning. Yeah. Like we 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 were like, huh? <laughs> it was like, and and in upon reflection, because like I booked all the spaces, so I was like, good to know for next time that have mirrors earlier in the process yeah so did you did you film instead or what was your kind we of- filmed but it again i think like uh i think we would have done better with having more mirrors at the beginning when right. we were learning choreography yeah i think that would have helped but you know you you live and you learn mm. um and so you have rehearsal space an in-kind contribution uh you have uh technician fees which depend on the place because um, most places the crew you're bringing in is are more like design crew or like loading crew as opposed to like operators often loading crew loading crew is like uh people to schlep and help set up 
which sometimes is your production team. I mean, I love you, Zach. I love you, Cam. Um, but often uh, might be other friends and peers and uh, theater professionals and technicians. But then often venues will have either their own operators, so their own people to operate a lighting board or a soundboard, or um, their their own technicians that they require you to use. So at Rich Mix, we had to pay when we were doing tech, we had to pay to have a technician there. Okay. And other costs, costumes, sundries, so like coffee, tea, per diems, things like that. Per diem is like the is like an amount of money that you give people for like subsistence when they're on a project. Uh, you have artist fees, of which there are rates to which we um, we use the ITC rates as sort of our guidelines as to how we chose to pay people, and the rate for the time that they were there. You have. Uh, I think, you know, in terms of other costs, like rentals for AV, so it could be lighting, could be sound stuff. You have, uh, I'm trying to think of other big chunks, like social media marketing, because that, like, that stuff right. adds up. Like, you know, it's like 50, you know, you can you can sink as much money as you want to sink into Facebook ads and you'll still get the same people you would have got through like Swing Dancers of London. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and then other costs. I'm trying to think if there's anything unexpected, like that. You know, you'd be like, I can't believe you had to spend money on that. Um, I mean, having having composers this time and learning the fees because I'd never commissioned before in a outside of an organization, like as an independent, I'd never commissioned composers before. So like learning that process and learning their costs. Yeah. Because like for the recording, I mean, the recording was like 4,500 pounds of the project. It was big. So we had 17 players, musician fees. We had copyist fees, which were like the, the charts. Like, like transcriptions? Or? Like, like the, they'd made the composition, but then they had, oh, of course, they had somebody make the charts for the players. Yeah. So they were like easy to read, easy to play from, which is like such an art. Like I am in awe. Music direction, an engineer in the studio. Uh, uh, they they took on themselves and had uh, a videographer named Jess Douse who was in the room who kind of captured the mood of the day. Um, there were, you know, their time and their composition fee. There's also a fee that you have to pay per performance that you use it and like that sort of stuff. And like the recording we have within the agreement we're able to like the the composers are, are able to use the recording within some regards but like for example we could only use it in live performance for those three shows and then if we want to do a future iteration like we would have to do what's called a buyout where we'd have to pay more money to all of the participating musicians which is which makes loads of sense um to be able to buy out that recording and to be able to use that in live performance and this comes back to like an article like a, for people that lived in London, like if you're not in the arts and music scene, like do you remember War Horse? Like the like the thing with like big, like the big puppeteer horse that was done by the National Theater. So this show had a live band, and then one day the live band, like the the orchestra, was brought into a recording studio to record the score, and then they started using the recording, and it caused the entire music community to just like. Uh, it had a lawsuit. They won the lawsuit. Like, there's like a whole thing about that, where in the particularly in the West End, of musicians by being part of the recording losing out on fees, 
and being shafted ostensibly um that it's very you you have to be very delicate about how you use recorded music and why versus like paying the musicians for their time and the royalties associated with that so that was a whole learning experience oh god yeah it's a lot and i'm really interested like i would love to do a whole episode on this one day because i feel like jazz music specifically like music from 20s 30s 40s is probably going to come into the public domain like within our lifetimes and that's really interesting and i would love to learn more about how copyright works in terms of recorded music but then also the compositions um and yeah like which context you use that music in um i've done a little bit of research but it's really hard to find out about it and um yeah i'm i'm interested in terms of like did that cross your mind in terms of producing this show um and is that something that music composers also consider like as to whether they perform their own compositions or they play original jazz standards i mean i think in our minds like one of the things is that because lindy hop is a is a uh historical dance mm-hmm. and is a vintage dance I think in, a f- in in this instance, by happenstance, it just sort of happened that our entire show was original music that was composed by these composers and then recorded by this the 17-piece all-female big band. Which is rad. Which is, I mean, it was epic. <laughs> and like, um, but the, as a historic dance, I think it's really important to also play the songs that we love as dancers because I think there's a feel in those songs that are part of what make us, I mean, you know, Ruby, we're both music lovers, right? Like there are different, different people come to Lindy Hop for all sorts of different reasons and it's fantastic and we're happy to have them. But like the number of people sometimes who maybe hear a song as a metronome as opposed to the whole color and candor of the music, I think the more that we hear and see explorations of that, like, because it really is some of the most joyful music and is young music and heartfelt and devastating and like awe-inspired. You know, like there's just a feeling in it. There's a heartbeat that I think is um, is so exciting to listen to. Mm. And like one of the things that I, I recently found out that I'm very excited about, well, not excited, but I've, I've just learned is that... Um, it was it was the musicians' strike from 1942 to 1944 that is attributed with killing the big band era. Like when they talk about, uh, and George T. Simon has a great book called The Big Bands, which is out of print but available on on Amazon and used copies. I know because I recently bought um, a copy of it. Uh, he talks about um, the it being a, a large contributing factor. Because tastes change and because a lot of the things that were played for young people in that period, because of the musician strike, it had this, and the war, it had this huge effect that meant that actually the, the tastes for sweet and swing jazz music and big bands went out of favor in it like giving way to more like the vocalist led bands and like the rock and roll and like sort of the other styles that kind of come a bit later, which I didn't appreciate and 
you know, and is also related to like, I'm working on a project right now that's um, for uh, VE Day, which um, is Victory in Europe and is the 8th of May. It's the 75th anniversary on the 8th of May, 2020. And I was looking at, you know, who are the artists that would have been playing in this country or what would be the music that people would have been popularly listening to. And you have all these V discs that were put out. And interestingly, the V discs were sort of like printed in the U.S. and then sent to all of the the army bases for the for for um, those serving to list for service people to listen to. And after the war, I mean, they were printed until like 1949, and then they were uh, subsequently destroyed because they never paid the royalties on them because they were they were used for like motivation and like keeping the troops, you know, like hearing songs of the day, etc. They like bootleg. They were government issue bootleg. <laughs> um, and the only V discs that survive are ones that are in private collection, but the majority of them were destroyed because also when they were printed, a lot of them were printed during the musician strike, which is which is very interesting. Wow. That's so so interesting. I'm gonna get a copy of that book. Hundred <laughs> percent. I like I mean, that that's not in that book. That's in a different book called Talking Swing by hey, a woman named Sheila Tracy. I'm going to get that one too. <laughs> yeah, which is, and that's all, and Talking Swing is all about um, uh, British, big, British big bands in this country, like Ted Heath, who was like the most popular post-war big band. Like, this is something that as related to this VE Day project, like, did I know this like six weeks ago? No. Um, so this happens to be something I'm really up on. But like, even thinking of like all female, th- like, we we had freelance musicians as part of our 17-piece all-female big band. If we wanted to hire an all-female big band, there are probably some amateur groups. And I would actually encourage if anyone's listening to this that actually knows of an all-female big band that is like working and gigging, love to hear from them. That'd be ultra cool. Um, but like Ivy Benson is a really significant uh, big band leader in this country who was popular and invited to perform in Berlin and Hamburg. Um, after VE Day and on VE Day and was like, there's like these incredible stories and like accounts from like Ivy's musicians. Um, And Ivy was like a very popular big band leader from like the 1940s to the 1980s. But interestingly, did not record that much. And I I think, again, it's kind of like this like quiet, like unconscious sexism. I mean, again, this is my opinion Um, where, you know, celebrated, highly accomplished but almost like there was an appetite for their recorded music. So, you know, you, there's not a, we don't have a whole lot of their recorded music with which to listen and enjoy. Although I'm sure the BBC have loads of stuff in their archives that we could probably listen to. Wow. That's incredible. I just need to let that one sip. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Okay. So in terms of working with musicians, what was that collaboration like? Um, was that a process that started early on, um, in terms of like locking down what the music was going to be in the compositions? Um, was it quite a close collaboration? I think I really asked a lot of my composers, um, Tom and Daisy, Tom Nettleship and Daisy Cool of 222 Music in that, I mean, firstly, they were my swing dance students. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Um, so for everyone, uh. Sharon Davis has an incredible dance school called Jazz Mad that has uh, a curriculum where you learn to both lead and follow over like that is baller. And uh, Daisy and Tom were students of mine um, in that course. 
And they had come because they had wanted to do something active and together because they they work as film and documentary composers mostly as they spend a lot of time working at home as they wanted something that was social and that would kind of uh, be something different. And Daisy is a is a saxophonist and Tom is a guitarist, bassist, plays many instruments, highly skilled, great session musician, etc. And so the two of them um daisy says that for like the end of her university degree she did a big band suite she composed a big band suite and this is the first piece of jazz that they had been commissioned to write which is you know like in terms of opportunity and a great learning curve i think amazing and one of the things that we had to really work on was actually like they totally got the feel because i was like i want bassy but i want new I'm like, I want Old Testament Basie, Count Basie, um, and I want it to have a, a, a new flair, and I want each character to have an instrument. So I was the trumpet. Um, and so they they put together these compositions, and one of the challenges with hearing a composition that's been done in, a, in like Sibelius or in like a music notation software is that it's hard to get a swung rhythm. So like listening to the first iterations we were like you totally are bang on in terms of what you've come up with but getting the feel particularly the opening number we had a lot of back and forth on the opening number Mm. because like the bass line and the drum wasn't right from my perspective and it took me going over to their place one night to listen to the tracks and to actually move in their living room so they could actually see me moving for us to figure out what we needed to do to get it to feel right because it felt like like you know when sing 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 i mean like i'm hoping that everyone here knows sing 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 you know yeah exactly we could sing the whole thing so in that in the opening bit of that it starts with like a drum solo and then it goes in this like da dum ba da dum ba it has like this yeah it has like it has almost like a latin feel yeah oh yeah and so in the beginning our opening number had a Latin feel, but like it never dropped into the swing. So like when we talk about swing music, it's a syncopated rhythm. It is a swung rhythm. Um, so, you know, it's not like we t- like cha-cha is like, like cha-cha-cha. Whereas with swing, it would be cha-cha-cha, cha-cha-cha. Like it has um, a more delayed effect. And so, so we had this thing where I was like, it sounds like a mambo and I needed to not sound like a mambo, <laughs> like, you know, and I could, and I couldn't articulate in language what I, how to describe it. I'm like, it doesn't swing. And part of it was, we agreed the software and part of it was the baseline. So like they shifted the baseline. It sounded way better in real life. It worked much better. So that, okay. that, that was sort of how we found that. So they were very collaborative, but they're used to. Like they composed music before we really knew what the story was. And then like the there's a piece in the middle of the show that's to a, a piece of music called that we call silhouette. And it's done, haha, in silhouette. Mm-hmm. I know, clever, right? Um but like that was a more holistic collaborative piece where we came to them and said, We need a piece that is the down point of the show. And where we demonstrate that they are all feeling lonely or feeling alone feeling like they're not syncing up with each other yeah and this is the kind of movement that we're kind of thinking for it and they went away and they composed something and that was like one of the few pieces of music where we got to work that way because like they're used to like you hand them a finished movie 
and then they compose. So hand them the story and then they compose. Whereas we were, we had them compose in the first instance and we were responding to their music. And then there's this one piece in the middle that I think in lots of ways was like, you know, um, Tom was always saying he had tears in his eyes when we watched that piece. Sorry, Tom. Um, <laughs> and I think we all felt it because like that was m more of us together. And like one of the things we've talked about doing is like in the devising process of, of the next evolution of the show um, that we would actually have a house band, like a four piece house band. And we would actually include members of that band in the in like the development rehearsal process so that actually we get a chance to riff off each other and get a feel for that and they can adapt. Mm, okay. Because like, I think in a devising process, it's hard to hand some, it's hard to tell people what it's going to be because we don't know yet. And like, yeah. Is it a chicken egg? Because like the, the dance is inspired by the music. Then if you don't have the music yet, you kind of like would have that back and forth. Yeah. And I think in this instance with the device, with the devised work as, as I've, I've learned because this is my first experience really doing devised work whereas like Joe and, and Kat and others are, are far have far better expertise than me is like now we kind of know the story so when you don't know the story it's very difficult <laughs> to know what you need and now that we know the story like then we kind of worked on m mood or feeling and now that we kind of have a sense of what the story is, then we can start to take advice. Like, you know, one of the things we really, um, we really uh, feel would be important is like, we definitely need a writer or a dramaturg to help us like make sure that the storytelling is like tight and, and poetic. Cause what we wrote was good, mm. but it, I think, you know, it, it's always good to get like, again, other professionals insight into that mm. because like, you know, we have people who come from a wide range of backgrounds. Um, and also, I think, again, having that a little bit of outside reference to your point makes it even more relatable for a non-Lindy Hop audience. Okay, I'm feeling very inspired. <laughs> I just have to say, I feel like I'm learning so much. Thank you. Um, so I guess to kind of wrap up, one of the things I wanted to ask you is... Um, what do you think this project looks like or any sort of future projects based on these ideas? You know, if there's no limit to resources, like what are your hopes and dreams? I want to make the modern, powerful, moving, joyful, immersive show where like it's not just we teach a taster class and the audience is dancing, but like we're telling a story and like everybody's in it. Like, I want to make that because I'm like, because I go and I watch all these like 1920s, like Gatsby parties. And I'm like, this is nonsense. And none of these people are Lindy Hoppers. And this is boring. <laughs> like, um, because like, I mean, this is this is this is the problem is like. We have a nostalgia for a time that we're not investing in the community who keep the dance alive. That actually is the era. So you have all these 1920s experiences that are not showcasing high quality jazz dance performers they are showing commercial dancers or dancers who've learned to dance charleston from youtube where yes it's fun but it's it's almost two-dimensional and like you know we dream in technicolor and cinemascope ruby like that's what lindy hop is like there is 
there is so much energy that it's so hard to bottle, but when you feel it, there's nothing like it. And so for me, it's like, how do I build a community or create a wider awareness that there, that there are opportunities in a community of dancers who dance this dance at a high enough professional level that they could be the people hired to do those experiences? So how do I make room for that? How do I create the opportunity where we all have enough time and work that we can be making shows rather than just um, just building a vibrant, exciting community. Because I think the community feel is like incredible. But I think there are people who are hungry to be dancers. And at the moment, to be a full-time Liddy Hopper is to be a teacher. And so I think what my hopes and dreams are, are to are to make a show that's relevant about moder- about the modern scene and using Lindy Hop as a tool to say like, and this is what it is to be powerful. And this is what it is to be part of community that isn't faith-based. And this is what it's about to find human connection. And this is what it's about to model consent to touch somebody else's body, which is ultra weird. <laughs> it is so weird. You know, walk up. Would you like to dance? Use your words. Don't just offer a hand expectantly. Don't look at my chest while we're dancing together because that's rude. Um, And also like, you know, we t- even we as, as a, as a, as a Lindy Hop community, like, why can't we incorporate people who have sensory impairment and who have mobility aids? Why can't we make, if we think this community is inclusive, and if we think that partner dancing is like the best thing since sliced bread, then let's open the door. Let's have a ramp. Yeah. <laughs> let's describe our Instagram photos so that people who are, who are, who are, you know, visually impaired can like have it with their reader that describes the picture that they see. Like, let's, you know if you want a good example of that i recommend following sky sirens which is a um burlesque pole various vintage pink (laughs) colored dance studio uh in sydney and um the person who runs that studio um is hard of hearing and all of their uh instagram or most of their instagram posts have um have captions Mm. um and just a such like I've, I, I'm from Sydney and I've not had the chance to go to that studio yet, but I always look at it. I'm like studio of dreams. <laughs> it's such a good example. Well, I mean, I was at a social dance the other day and a, and a woman named um, Haben uh, Grimma was there. And Haben Grimma is a woman who is a disability advocate who has a book that's come out called, you know, like Haben the deafblind woman that conquered Harvard Law. <laughs> like, that's her book. What a title. You know? So good. But she's a Lindy Hopper. Really? Yeah. Oh, she cool. dances in San Francisco. And, um, really? Yeah. And, but, and like, and in terms of, um, like, you know, the, in terms of, uh, having opportunities where we as a community can, it takes some thoughtfulness. It takes some planning. It takes some risk ass- risk assessments. Like, I mean, there's there's work involved in that. But I think, like, again, as a small community that's a microcosm of society, we can actually think about and implement things a lot faster. Mm. You know, but but thing even basic things like in the last five to ten years of like moving to gender neutral language and like, you know, even um, talking about. Uh, 
consent and saying no and like graciously taking a no and knowing how to give a no. And I think that's really important to give people scripts because yeah. I think we we struggle with that. But like when you ask me like my hopes and my dreams, it's like I want to make this show, which like, you know, Swing Sister Swing, I think what, what we've determined now is probably my company with Kat uh, alongside Kat. And that the show we made is is probably has a different name that we don't know yet that hasn't quite emerged. Whereas I think when we started out, it was kind of like, well, we're probably never going to make anything again. So like we made, so this is a good name. Um, whereas now I think it's actually, it's, it sort of started a company where we have some great people who we, who we really like working with and where we feel very safe to explore and I think safety, I think safety is a really important thing. I think finding people you feel safe with. Um, and you can have conflict. Conflict is important. Discussion and like difference of opinion is important. And different perspectives is important. But I think just um, aligning yourself with people who, who have the right vibe and the right work ethic and who have different strengths and complementary strengths, I think is really helpful. Um, I always love not being the smartest person in the room. I mean, to be fair, I'm never the smartest person in the room. Uh, but I love that feeling of being with people who I deeply admire because and who I respect and who I feel respect me. And I think that that make that sets a foundation for great work. And also, it may not even be great work, but the I think my ambition is to make and to have the opportunity to make and to be able to build an audience who are excited at the prospect of that work and wanting to participate and engage with that work because that's something that I think never felt possible where I was from, but feels like it is possible here and now. Um, and I've always wrestled with that feeling of like, am I an artist or am I just an arts administrator? And, and a weird sense of shame that comes with that. And I think where I've come to is like, no, I, I, I am an artist and I am all of these things. And, you know, I'm 33 years old and I can't die and not make work and say the things I want to say. So I think like my ambition with all the resources, you know, making like an original show with a live band, like that, you know, performs the Barbican and then like tours all over the UK and internationally. And then I go home to Toronto and like a big arts festival and I do this presentation and people are like, whoa, what even is this dance? I think that's like, <laughs> and then suddenly like everybody wants to dance Lindy Hop in Canada and I'm, you know, and, and there's amazing communities in Canada who do lots of great things. Um, but again, from this perspective of like female empowerment and social inclusion and that feeling that we make when we're together that doesn't exist when we're apart because like that's what keeps me coming back to the dance floor and that's the feeling I have every time I'm, I have a social dance and I often think like I and I'll wrap and you know, I'll wrap it up but like um I often feel like the smile I make when I'm when I'm dancing when I'm when I'm partner dancing or when I'm I'm sort of grooving on the floor is like a smile that doesn't exist in any other part of my life. Like there is something in my personal truth that exists when I get to, to move for myself and, and, and with myself and with others. And I think that's, it's just the coolest. <laughs>
That's so well said. I was, <laughs> yeah, I feel so, long-winded. Sorry, everybody. It was great. I loved it. This is my, this is like my, my the, like the Ruby Bell and Nancy Hitzig TED talk. <laughs> I'm excited for that uh, big inspirational talk as well. I mean, many to come. Um, so where can we find, um, like what's next for Swing Sister Swing and how can we learn more about the show? Well, you can find us at swingsisterswing.com. Uh, or on Instagram at at swing sister swing. Uh, and the the next things for us are that um, we are hoping to present the show in winter 2020, um, watch the space, uh, I guess that's autumn 2020, and potentially at um, another venue um, further afield in winter 2021 and building towards a tour. Um now that's the self-titled show swing sister swing that has yet to have a name and if anyone has a name we'd love to hear it um we are also um we've been commissioned to present a project in partnership with english heritage over the ve day 75th commemorative weekend the 8th to 10th of may and we will be delivering um workshops um that will sort of like hang out alongside uh, and, and enhance existing street parties and events across the country, um, commemorating this historic moment. Uh, and so to find out more information about that, um, you know, do look at our website and also look at the English Heritage uh, webpage for VE Day. And, um, and I don't know what comes next, but I am definitely excited about it. I'm very excited about it as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nancy. Ruby. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Nancy, for sharing your time with me for this episode. Uh, I hope it can be a resource to anyone who is interested in the behind the scenes of how one puts on a show and perhaps it will help you get your own ideas off the ground too. If you want to reach out to Nancy to learn more about fundraising or um, dance instruction, uh, you can reach out to her directly. Also, I'm really excited to share that Nancy has just launched uh, a podcast of her own called Swing Sister Swing, uh, which is a podcast about the journey of pursuing funding as an artist. I listened to the first episode of this uh, this week just gone by, and I'm really looking forward to learning about more ways that artists can ask for what they're worth and get their projects funded. So thank you, Nancy, for sharing this. If you like this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, you can check out my Patreon. Otherwise, if you could leave a review and share this episode, then that would mean the world to me too. Also, a big thank you to the Shirt Tail Stompers for their recording of Tea for Two, which is our show theme tune. Uh, if you haven't already, now is a great time to be purchasing their music on Bandcamp. Um, let's use this isolation time to support artists and build up our music libraries. As always, if you have any feedback for the show, feel free to get in touch with me. I'm at Swing Stuff Podcast on Instagram or at Ruby's Bells if you want to reach out to me personally. Thank you so much for listening today. I will see you next month for more chats on the Swing Stuff Podcast. Bye.